Let's pray. Our great God in heaven, our greatest joy and highest love, our Creator and Savior, Ruler and Sustainer, we give You thanks and praise this day. How majestic is Your name in all the earth. The whole world is full of Your glory. You have planned all things and ordained whatsoever comes to pass. And Your eternal purpose is to gather together in one all things in Christ Jesus, Your Son. For You have reconciled the world to Yourself through His blood shed on the cross, having made peace with us, Your sinful and straying people. And so now, Lord, we have full assurance and confidence as we draw near to You through the new and living way that Christ Jesus has opened up for us into Your heavenly sanctuary. Oh Lord, be pleased with us today as Your Spirit works in us. Be pleased with our prayers and our songs, with our preaching and with our hearing. May all things be done according to Your Word here today so that Christ Your Son may be all in all and so that we may be empowered and equipped by Your Holy Spirit to go forth from here serving and helping those in need. Oh, Father, You have given us every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You have made us sharers in His life and given us all things pertaining to life and godliness. Your grace is sufficient in all things. Have mercy on us, O Lord. Renew Your mercies to us this day. Have mercy on us, Holy Father, through Your Son and by the Holy Spirit, one God in three persons, forever and ever. Amen. Let us pray together. O great God in heaven, we thank You for sending Your Son to be born of a woman into our world, into our history, into our humanity. We thank You that Christ Jesus took all our sins upon Himself and died for them on the cross, conquering sin and death and Satan and bursting forth from the tomb as the victorious conqueror on the third day. Father, may His Gospel now go forth with power. Power to change our lives, to transform our desires and our relationships. Power to change the history of the world. For we know the Gospel is Your power unto salvation for all who believe. So Lord, we believe, but help our unbelief. Strengthen our faith in Christ Jesus. Strengthen our faithfulness to Him. This we pray in His name. Amen. Each of the four Gospels gives us a very detailed account of Jesus' trial and crucifixion. But the record of these historical events is also brimming with theological meaning. There is a depth to the story uh, that the Gospels tell. We're not just told the story, we're told what it means if, and this is the big if, if we know how to detect the clues. Because if we can see the clues and start to piece them together, we can see the the depth and the richness of the meaning that's there, the meaning of these events. It's very interesting how this works in Mark's Gospel in particular. I know we've been in and out of Mark's Gospel for a while now, so um, let me just remind you what Mark's Gospel is really like. Mark's Gospel moves at a breakneck pace. It is a very fast-paced narrative. Uh, In the first ten chapters or so, Mark covers about three and a half years of Jesus' ministry. Very rarely does he stop off and give you a long lock of teaching from Jesus. Rather, he constantly shows Jesus as a man on the move. In fact, he uses a a key word 
the word immediately is how it's usually translated uh, in our English Bibles. The word immediately to describe Jesus as a man of action, a man always on the go. Jesus immediately goes from one place to another, immediately does this or does that. Mark presents Jesus as a royal figure going forth conquering and to conquer, engaged in warfare, battling demons, forgiving sins, healing diseases. But then it all comes to a screeching halt when you get to chapter 11. Mark slows the tempo of his story down. He spends six chapters on the final week of Jesus' life, including two chapters on the last two Days, what we call on the church calendar, Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday. Mark has been telling the story of Jesus in fast forward. Now he begins to tell the story in slow motion, giving us really a a blow-by-blow, frame-by-frame, moment-by-moment account. Uh, He records the trial and the death of Jesus in excruciating detail. Mark's gospel has rightly been called a passion story with a long introduction. This is Mark says, this is what I was really getting to, so now I can slow down and tell you this in great detail. Mark has slowed down the pace of the story so we can linger over every detail, so we can focus on every little thing, so we can see how each little bit of the story adds meaning to the whole. It, it helps us understand what's happening. And see, Mark does all of this. He, he slows the narrative down because he wants to answer a very simple question, or really a series of simple questions. It's this. Why did Jesus die? And what does His death mean? What does it accomplish? How is this bloody spectacle of a man hanging on a cross, how is that the good news? How can that be the Gospel? How can this event, a man hanging on a cross, bloodied and beaten, how can this be the center of history, the hinge on which everything turns? It's interesting what happens when you compare the true trial scenes in Mark's Gospel, chapters 14 and 15. We didn't read 14 uh, this morning. We've read it several times recently. But remember, Jesus is on trial twice, once before the Jews and the Sanhedrin, and then before Pilate in a Roman court. Certainly these two trial accounts are very similar in a lot of ways, but there, there are also some pretty sharp contrasts between them. In chapter 14, when Jesus stands before the Jewish court, before the Sanhedrin, it is obvious he does not deserve to die. Those bringing testimony against him can't even get their stories straight. as if they're just throwing everything at him and hoping something sticks. But it's also obvious why he will die. Jesus has done things which aren't sinful. They're not crimes. They're not sins. But they have provoked a reaction. He has violated the scruples of the Jewish leadership. He has told them that judgment is coming. He's spoken out against their temple. He's even enacted that coming judgment by shutting the temple down temporarily. In fact, that seems to be sort of the straw that broke the proverbial camel's back and really ratcheting up their uh, hostility to Jesus. Jesus has taught all along that instead of fomenting revolution against Rome, the Jews should seek to love their pagan enemies. They should turn the other cheek. He presented to the Jewish people an altogether different vision for Israel's future, a different vision of what the kingdom of God would be. Not one in which a a Jewish Messiah becomes just another Caesar and plays the same kind of power games that Caesar's been playing all along, but rather a kingdom characterized by sacrificial love and service. 
See, in all kinds of ways, Jesus threatened the positions of power and prestige held by the priests and Pharisees. Worst of all, He had done things that only Yahweh, the Lord Himself, could do. Like forgive sins. He had said things that only the Lord should say. And so they accused Him of blasphemy. And so while we, the readers, know that Jesus is innocent, we can also easily understand why they want Him to be crucified. People always raise the question, why did Jesus get crucified? He seems like such a nice guy. Well, no, they've been raging against Jesus for quite some time because He has constantly offended them. Now their rage has reached the level where they must put Him to death. Their hostility has reached this level. Everything has been building up to this. So Jesus stands before the Sanhedrin as one who is imminently crucifiable. You look at Jesus and you say, yeah, this man is righteous, but I can also see why they'd want to crucify him. He has made all the wrong enemies. But the trial before the Romans is very, very different. It just has a completely different look when Jesus stands before Pilate. Here he appears imminently uncrucifiable. The trial proceedings here clearly highlight his innocence. Pilate asks, what evil has he done? And so we know when he's going to be put to death, it's going to be a great injustice. This is an innocent man, a righteous man. That's what's really clear. That's what's really underscored when Jesus stands before Pilate. There's no reason for him to die. There's no reason for him to be crucified. He has done nothing wrong. Pilate even asked the crowd of Jews who have brought Jesus to him, what has Jesus done? But instead of answering with evidence of his crimes, they, sh they simply shout out, crucify him. They don't name a crime, they name a punishment. They don't answer Pilate's question, what has he done? They just say, we want him dead. They've got to manufacture the guilt against Jesus. They've got to demonize Jesus. But the whole thing is obviously unjust. Jesus is completely uncrucifiable, completely unworthy of this kind of death. He is a righteous Man, that is obvious. And Pilate knows this. He knows it's only because of the envy and the hatred of the Jews that Jesus has been delivered over to him. So Pilate doesn't know what to do with this. After all, the Roman Empire was known for maintaining and administering justice. It was known for maintaining peace and administering justice. It boasted about the justice of its legal system. Whereas the Jewish leaders are openly hostile to Jesus Pilate is not. He has no reason to oppose Jesus. But now he finds himself caught in a very difficult spot politically, really between a rock and a hard place. And so what does he do? As politicians so often do, he resorts to pragmatism. He starts to do a cost-benefit analysis. He knows if he crucifies Jesus, yes, he will be putting a righteous man to death. But he also knows that if he lets Jesus go, it's quite obvious at this point that the Jews will revolt. He will have an open rebellion on his hands. He'll have to answer to Caesar for that. We can kind of sympathize with Pilate. It was no easier keeping peace in the Middle East back then than it is now. And so Pilate weighs his options and he figures that if killing one innocent man can buy a period of peace, then it's worth it. And so he hands Jesus over to be crucified. What I want to do this morning is dig deeper into some of the details of Jesus as he stands on trial before Pilate. 
And uh, there's certainly going to be a whole lot more to, to say than what I say this morning. And some of what I say this morning will cover uh, the same ground I covered last week, but from a somewhat different perspective to, to fill in the picture a little bit more. What we're going to see is that Jesus' death is very, very clearly presented as a substitutionary atonement. That's the label the church has historically used, a substitutionary atonement. Now, his death is actually much more than just a substitutionary atonement. The cross has other dimensions. The cross is multifaceted. It's got other meanings, other purposes. It's effective in other ways. We're going to look at those, too, in the weeks to come. But this is a critical dimension of the cross. Jesus is our substitute. And as our substitute, he makes atonement. That is, he provides covering and a cleansing for our sins. Consider how this is found, really, in the in the details of the story here. Consider what happens with Barabbas. Barabbas might look like a small player on the side of the story, but actually he plays a crucial role in the story. We're going to see next week that Simon does as well. Simon also looks like a bit player in this story, just yanked out of the crowd to carry the cross. But actually Barabbas and Simon both play huge roles in this story, symbolic, representative roles. Really, both men are parables of the gospel, different aspects of the gospel. Focus on Barabbas for now. We'll look at Simon next week. Focus on Barabbas for the moment. What do we know about Barabbas? What do we hold about him? Well, we know that he really is guilty. Uh, In fact, he's guilty of the very thing they are accusing Jesus of doing when they take him before Pilate. They accuse Jesus of being a rebel against Caesar. Barabbas really was a rebel against Caesar. Caesar. Barabbas really was a rebel against Rome. He had been part of an insurrection. And in this insurrection, he became a murderer. So he's a traitor against Rome. He's a murderer. This man was clearly an outlaw. Jesus, meanwhile, is none of those things. He's not an outlaw. He's not committed any crimes. In fact, he has consistently instructed his disciples to submit to Rome to pay their taxes, to render to Caesar what is Caesar's, to live as missionaries in the empire rather than as insurrectionists against the empire. But now Jesus is being charged with the very crimes Barabbas is guilty of committing. So consider the situation here. Two men stand before Pilate and the crowd. One is innocent, one is guilty. And what happens? The guilty and the innocent are switched. They switch places. The innocent man will die while the guilty man will go free. Barabbas' death sentence, the death sentence he deserves, will fall on Jesus. Jesus will be crucified for Barabbas' crimes. And at the very same time, Barabbas will be released. He will be released as a free man. He will be liberated. He'll be restored to society. This is one crucial dimension of the Gospel. What is God doing when Jesus goes to the cross? God is putting the innocent in the place of the guilty so the guilty can go free. God is putting the innocent in the place of the guilty so sin is punished and forgiven. This is what the death of Jesus 
is all about. The righteous for the unrighteous. The righteous bearing in His body our sin so we can be released. So we can be set free. He takes our guilt and our accusations onto Himself. So whatever you've done wrong, Jesus dies for it. Jesus dies under that death sentence. The charges against you, the accusations against you are charged to Him. He faces those accusations and suffers for them. And in this... The deepest purpose of the Incarnation is fulfilled. See, Mark introduced his Gospel back in chapter 1 as the Gospel of the Son of God. Who is Jesus? We know from the opening sentence of Mark's Gospel. This is the Son of God in human form. And in Mark chapter 10, Jesus tells us why He has come. He says, the Son of Man came to give His life as a ransom for many. He came as the Son of Man, as the second Adam. So he's the Son of God, and he's the Son of Adam, and he has come for this purpose. He was born to die. God became man because God wanted union and communion with humanity. Think about that. That was God's purpose in creation, in the creation of man. God wanted union and communion with humanity, with us. He wanted to share himself with us. God created not because He was lonely and needed our fellowship, but out of the overflow of His love, He, he wanted to share Himself with others, to, to share His glory and His joy. And so He made us to share in His glory and His joy, to have this union and communion with us. That's why I think even if Adam and Eve had not sinned, even if sin had never entered into the world, I think God would have become man to, to fully enter into the deepest possible fellowship with His creatures. You see, now, because of sin, it's not enough for God to become man. God must become man and then deal with our sin. Sin stands in the way of this oneness God wants with us. Sin stands in the way of union and communion. Sin means we're not what God made us to be. It means we've refused God's offer of fellowship and friendship. It means we've turned away from God to go our own way, to do our own thing. And God has to fix that. God wants to be one with us. And so what does God do? God becomes man. But as I said, for God to become man is not enough because sin still blocks that friendship and that fellowship God wants with us. And so what else does God do? In addition to becoming man, God not only, God not only becomes one of us, but He becomes one of us to die for us. God becomes one of us. And in becoming one of us, He takes our sin unto Himself. He comes to bear our liability to punishment, to pay our debts. See, Jesus is God's eternal Son. He's one with God. And in the incarnation, He becomes the Son of Adam. He becomes one with us. He's like us in every way, except for sin. He shares our skin, but not our sin, as the saying does. He has come for this purpose to fully unite us to God. But in order to do that, the incarnation is not enough. There must also be a thing. And so He comes to be our sin bearer. And they wonder, how can this work? How can one man die for the sins of the many? How can one man die for the sins of the world? How can He substitute Himself for us in this way? What is the justice behind this? What is the logic of this? Think about how substitution might work. You know, if I get a parking ticket and you pay it on my behalf, we could say, in a way, you are my substitute. 
In a sense, you have become my substitute. And the court will allow that. You can pay my fine. You can pay my debt. You can substitute yourself for me in that way. But you know, it gets a little more complicated if I'm convicted of murder. And then you offer yourself to the judge to take my death sentence. The judge is not likely to allow that. But see, Jesus is not just some private individual stepping out of a crowd of individuals saying, I'll die for these people. No, see, that's why Jesus calls Himself Son of Man again and again. He is a new Adam. It's an Adam who got us into this mess. It's an Adam who will get us out of this mess. He is a new Adam. And as the Son of Man, this new Adam, He is the head of the human race. You could say He is the CEO of Humanity Incorporated. And so He can act on our behalf. He can act on behalf of us all in our name and in our stead. Again, that's what Son of Man means. He's the Son of Adam. And therefore, He can do for us all what we could not do on our own. He can obey for us. He can suffer for us. He can take the wrath and the curse we deserve. He can act in our place and in our name so that what He does, we have done. He acts for us even as us. You might say. This is what Jesus came to do. He is sinless. But He is charged with our sin and becomes liable for it. See, humanity sins, so humanity has to pay. But there's no human who can pay. So what does God do? God becomes man so He can pay the debt we owe. So He can take the penalty we deserve. You could say God became humanity's scapegoat. That's really one of the truly amazing things in this story. It's not just that God sides with the victim here. That's been happening in the Bible all along. If you've been you know, reading the Bible up to the Gospels, you've seen God do this again and again. God siding with the victim, siding with the oppressed. So, for example, back in the book of Genesis, when Joseph becomes the victim, he's the victim of his brothers who wrongfully sell him into slavery, and he's wrongfully accused, and goes to prison. God sides with him all along and ultimately vindicates him. Or think about the Israelites in the book of Exodus who fall into slavery, who are oppressed by Pharaoh. They become victims of Pharaoh's oppression. But God sides with them. God is with them in their oppression. And God ultimately brings them out. He liberates them. But there's something more going on here. It's not just that God is siding with the victim. It's that God becomes the victim. God accepts the role people assign to Him. People say to God, you're guilty. And God takes that charge. He stands under that verdict and takes the penalty. In Jesus, God subjects Himself to humanity's false accusations and humanity's lies and humanity's unjust violence. God endures the worst that humanity can throw at Him. He becomes the object of man's hatred and scorn. The meaning of this gets even richer if we remember that this is all taking place at Passover. In fact, this is why Pilate is going to release a Jewish prisoner to them. It's really a miniature reenactment of the Passover because that's what Passover was all about, freeing slaves. And the Romans think of the Israelites as their slaves because they're the, they're the imperial nation ruling over Israel. Passover would typically be commemorated 
Uh, it would be, be commemorated by Pilate by releasing one of the Jewish prisoners. And that's because the Passover as a whole commemorated the Jews being released from slavery in Egypt. And of course, the Jews were released from slavery in Egypt through the blood of the Passover lamb. Through the blood of the Passover lamb, the Israelites were redeemed from slavery. The Passover lamb died so that the firstborn sons could live. What does all this mean? This is happening at Passover. It means Jesus will be the true Passover lamb whose shed blood brings freedom. He will be slaughtered as the Passover lamb so the captives can be released. He will die in the place of the firstborn son. In fact, the meaning gets deeper still if we consider Barabbas' name. His name is a compound. bar Abbas. Bar means son. Abba means father. Barabbas means the son of the father. That's his name, the son of the father. Literally, that's what the name Barabbas means. And he would have to have been a firstborn son to have this name. See, Barabbas is a real historical character, but he's also a symbolic figure, a parable of what's actually happening. Barabbas is the son of the father. Who's the first human son of the Father. Who's the firstborn son of the Father in the creation? Adam, of course. Adam is called the Son of God. He's the Son of the Father. He's the first human who carries that name. Son of the Father. But of course, Adam sinned against his father. He was a rebellious firstborn son. He became a rebel against his father. He became an insurrectionist. The first insurrectionist against the Father's authority. Later in history, Israel becomes the son of the father, a kind of new firstborn son, a new race of Adams. But Israel also rebels against the father. Israel also becomes a nation of insurrectionists against the father's authority. So who is Barabbas? Barabbas is really representative. He's representative of Adam and of Israel. In fact, his name is so generic, he really represents everyone. Every man is the son of his father. He's really a placeholder for everybody. Every one of us is Barabbas. Every person to ever live is just as guilty as Barabbas is guilty. We're all sons of the Father who have committed insurrection. And so, if Jesus is to die in Barabbas' place, what is He doing? He is dying for and as Adam. He is dying for and as Israel. He's dying for and as every man. One son of the Father is taking the place of another. We'll see if we can say more again. Remember, go back to the opening line of Mark's Gospel. Jesus is called the Son of God. He is the Son of the Father. He's the ultimate and eternal Son of the Father. And so His death ultimately reveals the love and the grace of the Father. This is the Son of God, the true Son of the Father being tried. And the true Son of the Father is going to get crucified. The blood of God is going to be shed. And why? All for love. All for the sake of sinners. Lord Byron once said, if God is not like Jesus, He ought to be. 
<laughs> well, the good news is God is like Jesus. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. God is in Jesus. The fullness of the Godhead dwells in Jesus bodily. I like the way Michael Ramsey put it. Michael Ramsey said, God is Christ-like and in Him is no unchristlikeness at all. Christ shows us God. The cross shows us God. The Son does all of this to reveal the Father. He's the Son of the Father. He's revealing the Father to us. In fact, it's interesting, when He finally dies, in Mark 15.39, we're told that the centurion, the Roman soldier, okay, he is probably one of the soldiers who just a few hours earlier had been mocking Jesus and making fun of these claims that He was a king. This very centurion had mocked Jesus thinking He's not a king. When he sees the way Jesus dies, in Mark 15.39, he confesses, surely this man was the Son of God. Surely this man was the Son of the Father. This is the true Barabbas who has died on the cross. This is not a merely human death. There's something more than human going on here. There's something divine about this man and about this death. Again, what has God done on the cross? God has substituted Himself for sinners. Why did Jesus die? So God and man could be one. So the purpose of the creation and indeed the purpose of the incarnation could be fully realized. Understand this. In Pilate's court, the very charges brought against Barabbas fall on Jesus so clear. Jesus will die for Barabbas's sins. It's the same kind of thing that happened in the Sanhedrin. There, Jesus was accused of blasphemy. And the way Mark tells the story, it's very clear. The very moment they're bringing their charge of blasphemy against Jesus, Peter is actually committing blasphemy in the courtyard outside by calling down curses on Jesus. And so Jesus will die for the very sins Peter has committed. He will die the blasphemer's death, even though he's not a blasphemer himself. That's the sentence that will bring about his death. And it's the same here. The sentence against Barabbas will bring about his death. And you see what this means? Whatever charges could be brought against you, whatever accusations could be brought against you, Jesus died for those sins. He died under that death sentence. Are you an adulterer? Perhaps not in perhaps not bodily, but at least in your mind? Are you a murderer? Perhaps not actually shedding blood, but in your heart, hating people? Are you a gossiper or a slanderer or a liar? All those accusations that could rightly be brought against you have fallen on Jesus. And He has suffered and died for your sins. You're all Barabbas. Barabbas is every man. Jesus has died for your sins. It's so simple here, really. There is no salvation without the incarnation. There is no salvation without substitution. In every way, Mark has written a narrative that shows us Jesus will die in the place of sinners. He will make a substitutionary atonement. One that fulfills God's purpose, God's aim of gathering all things together in His Son. The new Adam. The new head 
of humanity. What Mark gives to us in story form, Paul gives to us in propositional form. Or maybe what we should really say is that Paul's propositions are actually really compressed stories. Paul says things like this, Romans 5, God showed His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We were God's enemies and God loved us anyway. And God in love gave His Son to die for us to resolve that enmity so that we might be forgiven and reconciled. Colossians 1, For it pleased the Father that in Christ all the fullness should dwell, and by Him all things should be reconciled, having made peace through the blood of His cross. Jesus died so that the universe might be filled with God's shalom. So the whole universe might be reconciled to Him. So that everything might fall into its proper place in the whole cosmos. 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says, God made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Actually, I think it's best read as to be a sin offering for us. He knew no sin. Pilate says, what evil has He he done? But He has made a sin offering. He's crucified anyway. 1 Corinthians 15, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. This was God's prophesied plan. We read about it in Isaiah 53. There are countless other passages we could go to in the Old Testament where we see His death is according to the Scriptures and it is for our sin. Galatians 3, this is one of the best. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Paul there is citing a law from Deuteronomy, an obscure law in the law of Moses. Anyone who dies on a tree bears God's curse. Now, why would that be? Why would be? Why would be? You know, if you're killed on a tree, why does that bring about some special curse or reveal some special? We'll go back to Genesis three, the very first sin. When did sin enter the world? When did the curse enter the world? When man stole from a tree. And so now the one who is killed on a tree is bearing that curse brought into the world in Genesis 3. He is paying for the stolen fruit. See, the the, the fruit was stolen from the tree. Restitution has to be made. The fruit has to be put back on the tree. What happens when they're nailing Jesus to the cross? They're nailing that stolen piece of fruit back to the tree. Jesus is bearing the curse Adam brought into the world. By his sin. See, Paul gives us these tightly compressed summaries, but if you unpack them, you find he views the cross in exactly the same way as Mark and the other gospel writers. Jesus dies bearing our sins. Jesus is made a curse for us to release us from the curse. He dies our death. He takes the wrath we deserve. He endures the forsakenness and the darkness we all deserve. Whatever sin deserves, that's what Jesus suffered on the cross. See, we are great sinners. We have great need. But praise be to God, we have a great Christ to meet our needs and cover our sins. As great as our sins are, Christ is greater still. As deep as our needs go, Christ's love goes deeper still. See, Jesus didn't die for an idea or for a cause or for a movement. He died for people. He died for persons. He died to create a new humanity. He died to purchase a people 
to pay our debts, to set us free, to cancel all the claims and accusations brought against us, to bring us into fellowship and friendship with God, to bring us into His kingdom, His new creation, to form a new humanity characterized not by the flesh, but by the Spirit. Not by the kind of enmity that you see in these law courts where Jesus is scapegoated. Jesus died to bring an end to those kind of scapegoating mechanisms. He died so sins can be forgiven once and for all. So that kind of scapegoating and human sacrifice could be brought to an end forever. Do you really want to understand this? How great this is? If you really want to understand, understand how this is good news, personalize it. He said you're all Barabbas's. Put yourself in Barabbas's shoes. He knows he's a guilty man. He knows he's about to die. There's this death sentence hanging over him. He's on death row. Think about this. The trial and crucifixion take place on Friday. What do you think it was like to be Barabbas on Saturday? That he felt relieved. He knew he had dodged the bullet. He knew he had dodged the nails. He had dodged the cross. No doubt he was relieved and overjoyed. He had been saved by a substitute. And so had you. You are saved by a substitute. I think it is so crucial for us to get this. God loved you enough to die for you. God did not spare His own Son so He could spare you. So many of our life problems, so many of our hang-ups stem from insecurities and anxieties that we have. And beneath those insecurities and anxieties we have is this feeling that we're not really loved. And we don't really feel loved because we know we're not really lovable. We know deep down we're not really lovable. But at the cross, we find the solution to our unlovability. Christ's blood is shed for your benefit. He didn't wait around for you to make yourself lovable. He loved you while you were still His enemy, while you were still unlovable. That's the thing. God loves the unlovable. He dies even for His enemies. There's no greater love than this. No greater sacrifice could be made for you. No greater security could be given to you. No greater care could be shown to you. This is God's love for you. Accept it. Accept that this is who you are. That you are loved in the Beloved. That God loves you with the same love He has for His Son, Jesus Christ. That everything Jesus did, He did for you and as you. And it's the Father's love that provided Jesus. And it's Jesus in love who does these things. If sometimes the hardest thing to accept is that we have been accepted. As much as we crave love, sometimes it is very hard for us to accept the fact that we are Loved. But you have been accepted. And you are loved. You've been accepted by God through Christ, through His cross. His death shows you His love. You know, I heard one preacher put it one time. He said, how many sons does God have to kill to prove to you that He really loves you? He gave His one and only Son, His eternally and infinitely beloved Son for you. And those things that you think make yourself unacceptable have been dealt with. And so you don't have to try to fix yourself. 
you know, you can't make yourself acceptable. And you don't have to try to hide those things that make you unacceptable. You know, have you ever gotten a stain on a shirt? You know, you're eating a burger and you get ketchup on your shirt or something like that and you try to get it out and you realize you just made the stain bigger. You just kind of ground it in and you made things even worse. You ever done that? When we try to fix ourselves, that's what we're doing. We are making the stain worse. The only way to get that stain out of your life is to go to the cross because the blood of Christ is the ultimate and only detergent. We all know something's wrong with us. We all know we've got a spot, a stain we can't wash out. The only way to deal with it is to go to the cross. That's the only way to deal with your guilt and your shame. Those wrong things that you have done and those wrong things have been done to you. The only way to deal with those things is by going to the cross. You know, the way I heard one counselor put it, I love this, he said, without the cross, we end up hating ourselves rather than hating our sin. All we can do is, is enter into self-loathing because we don't have any way of dealing with what's really wrong with us. The cross is the answer. Because the cross, you see, yes, God hates your sin, but God loves you. And God has pried you and your sin apart from one another, destroying your sin and keeping you as His eternal and beloved possession. That's the cross. That's what it all is all about. See, the cross exposes what we are and who we are. You know, the Jews and the Romans were supposed to be the best humanity had to offer. They really were. The Jews had the true religion. They had the Scriptures, the oracles of God. They had God dwelling in their midst. They had the temple. And the true liturgy, the true sacrificial system, out of all the other sacrificial systems in the ancient world, they were all false and idolatrous. Only the Jews had the true system. The Romans, meanwhile, had the greatest empire the world had ever known. They were great at administering justice and managing the empire. There had never been anything quite like the Roman empire in the history of the world. It's humanity at its best. And yet what happens when confronted with God in the flesh, standing before them, they do their worst. The trial of Jesus shows us all of humanity apart from Christ is in the grip of the demonic. A kind of demonic darkness. What Paul the Apostle calls the principalities and powers. Satan is a liar and an accuser and a murderer from the beginning. And those things have rubbed off on us so we do the same thing. Our character as fallen human beings is revealed in the trial and crucifixion. But the cross not only reveals humanity's wickedness, it also exposes God's love. God's love at its greatest and its fullest. God's love for sinners. Because see, what does God do at the cross? He takes on all those lies and accusations and hatred. God comes to dwell in our darkness and endures God-forsakenness in order to deliver us from all of these things. See, God knows your sin. He knows what's in your heart. He knows what you've done. And He loves you anyway. So often we think we have to choose between being known and being loved. It's easy to think, oh, if someone is going to love me, I can't let them get to know me too well. Because if they see me at my worst, if they know what's really going on inside me, then they won't love me anymore. They'll reject me. But we want to be known. We want to have people who, who, who know us inside and out. And we have this craving to be known. 
by others. So we want to be known, but then we're afraid if people know us too well, they're not going to love us. So what can we do? You know, even the people who come the closest to knowing us and loving us at the same time, like your spouse or your parents, still know you very imperfectly and certainly love you very imperfectly. But it's not so with God. In Christ Jesus, we find one who knows us fully and who loves us perfectly. He loves us better than we know ourselves. He knows sins that we don't even know about. He knows the true depth of our depravity. We can't search out the wickedness of our own hearts, but God knows it to the very depths. He knows the dregs of your soul. And He loves you anyway. You are fully known and fully loved. Those two things you pray, you think you have to choose between them? No, you don't. In God, in Christ, you get both. You don't have to hide who you are and you don't have to try to prove who you are. There's no reason to despair over your sin and there's no reason to arrogantly act like you don't have any. Like you've never done anything that needed forgiveness. You can be honest about your brokenness and about your sin and you can also know that you are loved and accepted and have the confidence that comes from that, the security that comes from that. See, the cross releases us from the past. It gives you an identity in the present. And it secures your hope for the future. The cross is a historical event with eternal implications. All your past has been dealt with. All those things you've done or that have been done to you, they've been dealt with in the cross. It changes your past forever. It deals with your past. It changes your present. It changes how you live and see yourself in the here and now. And it gives you a glorious future. The promise of a glorious future with God forever and ever and ever. Yes, the cross shows you're a sinner. It shows you what you deserve. But the cross also shows you you're alive. You are a sinner who is loved, who's been made righteous through Christ. You are fully and faithfully and perfectly known and loved in Christ Jesus. Let's give God thanks. God, we do thank You for Christ Jesus, Your Son, our Savior. We thank You that Your Son became man, that He suffered and died to remove sin, that great barrier, that obstacle standing between us and You. So now we have oneness with You. Now we can enjoy union and communion with You, which we were made for in the beginning. We thank You for this friendship and this fellowship we have with You in Christ Jesus. We thank You that You know us. You know all our ugliness, all our flaws, all our stains, and yet you love us perfectly and fully anyway. And you promise to ultimately not only forgive us, but transform us and make us like Christ Jesus. Oh, this is good news. May we live in it. May we rest in it. May we trust you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.